audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. There's something that happens every year in the United States that you might be aware of, you might not be aware of. It's something called the July effect. And if you're here in San Antonio, say absolutely, we know exactly what the July effect is. The July effect is when the air conditioner bill is at its highest peak and we sweat the most and you do all of your activities between the hours of 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. and you don't go outside anymore. That's not the July effect I'm referring to here. Uh, If you're a parent, maybe you think the July effect is that time period where it's like the kids have been off of school now and the July effect is occurring. It's like how soon is school beginning because the July effect is happening within our household right now. It's not what I'm referring to either. Maybe you think the July effect is something that happens around the 4th of July. You're unsure if it's patriotism that is welling up with side of you or possibly an overindulgence in hot dogs that is welling up inside of you. That's not the July effect that I'm referring to either. I'm referring to a July effect in the medical world. In the medical world, July is a very interesting and very different month. It's the time of year that new residents step into the hospital. They're now exiting the classroom and they're entering into teaching hospitals. They're recent graduates, they have the book knowledge, but yet they don't have the tangible experience quite yet. There are studies that show uh, an increase in medication errors during the month of July, specifically in teaching hospitals. It's higher and elevated compared to the neighboring non-teaching hospitals. Some studies even show, to quote, significant seasonal variation with surgical outcomes, with an increase in post-surgical morbidity and mortality. Here's what another article says. Quoting again, the July effect is a well-known phenomenon in the medical world. Recent medical school graduates step foot in teaching hospitals as residents for the first time, as the class above them takes on new duties. She quotes and she says, if you talk to anyone who works in a hospital, unequivocally, they'll tell you care is worse in July, says Anupam Jenna, an internist and assistant professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. The interns know less than physicians who were there two to three months before, end quote. Experience matters. Information has been handed down through experience, specifically within the medical world. Many of these same residents will one day be handing out their own experience to the new set of residents. They will then have delivered what they have received. This is teaching through experience. What have you received through experience that you should also be delivering? What life circumstances have you walked through that God is using to redeem others? There are numerous stories that uh, I could walk through, specifically within our church body and specifically within this week, from the couple struggling with infertility, that's walking it out publicly so that others can see the positives and the negatives of their struggle to the individual who's gone through abuse and now has a desire to be on the forefront of those who have been abused. 
to the blog I just read this week from a good friend I have in the Pacific Northwest who's in her mid-40s and is still single, using her current circumstance to remind me that being single is still from God. To the couples within this body who have been on the brink of divorce, but God has showed them how to love one another sacrificially. These are your stories. These are our stories of experience that God has walked us through. There was a purpose for you walking through them. That might include you actually delivering what you have received. I'm sure if we sat sat around long enough, we could create a list of experiences that we, as the people gathered this morning, could fill a list from here to the very, very back wall. There's one experience, though, that I believe is of utmost importance. It's one experience that changes everything. It's the, experiencing, it's the experience of not experiencing what we actually do deserve. It's the experience of the gospel. As we look at our text this morning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to break it up into three sections here. We're going to look at the definition of the gospel that Paul presents to us. We'll look at then the evidence of the gospel, and we'll finally end with the mission of the gospel. Let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. I'll read verses 3 and 4 right now. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice how Paul begins here. He begins with a statement of importance. The message of the gospel is something that Paul began with and considers to be of first importance. Justin said it last week, and I'll, I'll reiterate what he has said. Stonehook Bible, we are a one-trick pony, as he said last week. We do really one thing, and that's proclaim the gospel. From everything that we've just experienced so far here on a Sunday morning, from our singing of singing the gospel, to communion of partaking of the gospel, to what I'm doing right now of preaching of the gospel, to what we do throughout our community groups that meet throughout the week of discipling one another and fellowship in the gospel. We as a church stand on the gospel alone. It is our footing. It is our firm foundation. It isn't just of first importance to us, but of most importance as well. And it seems to be the same with Paul. We can go back to the very beginning of this letter of 1 Corinthians and see the gospel centrality that has been woven into each one of these sections. His letter seems to be just full of the gospel. It seems to be the source, if you will, that Paul is using to discuss many tough topics. Paul's delivering what he has received. He's about to define the gospel for us here. And I don't just want to gloss over this. This is such a vital statement and something that we should be all striving to do. What is it that you have received? We've already discussed the many different life stories that we've received, but there's also the aspect of teaching and of discipleship that we see Paul evidencing here. Paul has been a disciple and is now discipling still to this day through this letter. There are many different strategies for the best way to teach and to disciple another. Let me just say that this is one of my personal favorite methods. It's delivering what you have received. We started something roughly about a year ago, actually. Um, something, something called One Up, One Down, and Many Around. 
The idea is that we as a church body, every one of us as individuals, would have an individual up and an individual down and many around us as we look towards discipleship. Some of you jumped right on board with that and instantly said, you know what, I need my one up, I need my one down, and I need my many around. Others haven't been as eager. It's our desire still as a church that this occurs. I had the opportunity to to walk through a curriculum with two brothers here in this room. Let me tell you, it was not easy. It was very difficult. The curriculum itself was challenging. There was memorization every single week that was involved with it. It was tough. We failed many times memorizing. It's okay. The curriculum was tough, though. Not only that, but just the meeting. We met weekly. Not only did we meet weekly, we met Thursday nights at 8 p.m. So we met from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. every Thursday night. That's challenging. I have a busy schedule. I know the two guys that I met with had busy schedules. It was tough. There's scheduling conflicts. We went through the holidays. We went through Thanksgiving. We went through Christmas. We went through New Year's. And there's also the fact that I have a family. And I have a, a spouse that works. There were many times we were as ships in the night where she would pull into the driveway. And we'd say, hey. And we'd kiss. And I was off. And she was in. Tag team the kid duty. It was tough. It was hard. Discipleship is not an easy process. However, it was absolutely worth it. I would go back and do it all again. Go back and restart if we could. Go back and experiencing all the challenges that that came up from doing it that way. Because at the end, it was absolutely worth it. I want everyone to experience Christ in the midst of a discipleship relationship. Will you let me be a resource for you? Some of you say, where do I begin? That sounds wonderful. You've presented all the negatives of it, but then it still sounds like something I would love to do. Let me be a resource for you. Let our church, let the elders be a resource for you. Some of you might be currently looking for a discipleship relationship. Let us help you connect some of the dots. Some of you might already have a group that you meet with. Uh, maybe it's coworkers that you meet with over lunch. Maybe it's uh, a common sports team that you gather to, to watch them win and or lose. I would say begin there. Begin with where you already have relationships built. Need some curriculum? There's tons out there. Let us resource you. How can we assist in delivering what you have received? If this interests you, I'm going to ask you to please follow up. It's easy to sit into a sermon and hear something such as, let's begin a discipleship relationship and then do absolutely nothing about it. In the, in the midst of what's happening right now, I ask you to stop, pause, and figure out how are you going to follow up. If you need assistance, please let us know. Grab a card around you. There's cards on that black table. Just simply write discipleship on there or write, Craig, follow up with me. Shoot me an email, Craig at Stone Oak Bible. It's easy for me to, to begin to connect some of these dots for you. The gospel is one of these words that can be very difficult to describe. It's, it's difficult at times to create definitions for things that we all kind of know and recognize. The gospel is especially difficult because it's both very complex, yet at the same time, very simple. Everyone seems to articulate what the gospel is slightly different based upon your circumstances, based upon uh, how you've grown up, based upon how you have interacted with the gospel. I know this because we're in a room full of people, and people all experience things slightly different. Some of you know, but some of you may not know the process that we have for membership here at Stone Oak Bible. One of the things that we require of all of our members to go through is an interview process with one of our elders. 
During this, it sounds intimidating, I know. It's really easy. It's not that bad, I promise. During this process, though, of this uh, interview, we have one main, we have two main goals. One, get to know you, get to know your family. How did you hear about us? How did you come to, to Stone Oak Bible? Um, what are you currently doing for career-wise? How many kids do you have? Where do you guys live at? Things along those lines. But there's another very important question that we always ask during these interviews. And you fill it out online as well as we have you discuss it in person. And it's a simple question that's very complex, and it's simply, what is the gospel? It's a question that we believe every single believer should be able to articulate. Without reading any further in our text this morning, what would you say the gospel is? How would you define it? What are the core elements that must be present within your definition of the gospel? I believe that Paul here gives us the simple definition of what the gospel is. He lays it out in three parts. He says death for sins, burial, and resurrection. These are the three pieces he chooses to incorporate into his definition of the gospel. He begins with the death of Christ. He actually, though, begins earlier than that with this statement because he mentions the why behind Christ's death. It says at the end of verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. It's such a simple statement, but it's once again very complex. Sin is what has separated us from God. From the very beginning, sin has created a divide, a barrier between man and God. It's created a barrier that is impenetrable by any works or any deeds. Sin is a problem for you and a problem for me. It is all-encompassing. There is no person, race, gender, or ethnicity that is unaffected by sin. God, though made a way through his perfect, his spotless, and his righteous son, who laid down his own life willingly on my behalf and on yours, a blood sacrifice was required as a covering of sin. And Christ here willingly shed his blood for us. We who were once alienated from God are now brought near through the sacrifice of his son. Christ died for our sins. Paul continues, and he says that Christ was buried, and he was raised on the third day. It shows the humanity of Christ. He suffered a real death. This was an acting. This was not a stunt double. There was not a put up a different person instead of Jesus. There was not a removal of him from the tomb. Christ was killed, and he was placed in a tomb. The tomb, however, could not hold him. And then three days later, the tomb was empty. Christ had been resurrected. God took what was dead and gave it life. By doing so, he conquered all. In just a few short weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ during Easter. This is the one time of year that the resurrection is placed at the forefront of churches across the world and across our nation. A shameless plug, if you don't have a place to attend on Easter Sunday, we will be here, we will be open, we would love to have you join us. We'll be celebrating the resurrected life of Christ while we also celebrate the new lives of people of our church through baptism. Paul says that the gospel is of first importance. Is that true within your life? I feel that oftentimes we make the gospel a singular event. Although the gospel is directly tied to our justification, it's also tied to our sanctification. 
As we continue to look at the face of Christ, we should continually be changed to look more like Christ. The gospel isn't only of first importance once, but it's continually of first importance. It becomes so easy to fall into gospel complacency. We forget the power of the gospel to transform lives, to transform even our life. We use false substitutes which never satisfy. This morning, evaluate your own heart. Is the gospel still of first importance within your life? And what shows that it is? Do your actions show that it is of most value? Have you unintentionally lost sight of the gospel and removed it from its place of first importance? We have a few people with us that are currently going through the membership process right now. When you get to the question of asking what the gospel is, uh, I will give you some kudos if you have the memorized version from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. Well done. It is our gospel minimum, if you will. It is what Paul lays out, and it's a great starting place of what the gospel is. It is simplified. It is a summary. It's phenomenal. If you remember back to the July effect, there was one thing that separated the new residents from their counterparts. Now, one thing was experience. Most doctors and residents have the same education. In fact, the residents might be in a better position because their education is fresher. They've had less time to forget things from class. The difference maker, though, is their experience. It's the evidence that they are qualified. Paul, in this passage, gives us two pieces of evidence concerning the gospel. I love this. I'm originally from the state of Missouri. Missouri has a number of kind of state mottos, if you will, or state nicknames, one of them being the cave state. So Missouri is full of caves, which means Missouri is full of sinkholes, uh, which are both good and bad. However, there's another name that Missouri is known for, and if you know my personality, you might say, absolutely, you are definitely from Missouri. It's the show-me state. Missouri is known as the show-me state. There's all kinds of history and lore around how they, they crafted the name of why is Missouri the show-me state. Um, however, if you interact with some people from Missouri, you're like, absolutely, we understand now why it is the show-me state. The, the big question I always want to know is, what evidence do you have? to support your claims. You can tell me something, but where is the backing to it? How can you support that? Show me. The two pieces of evidence that Paul puts forth are God's word as well as God's people. At the end of verse three and the end of verse four, they have similar endings. They both end with the exact same phrase of in accordance with the scriptures. Why does Paul choose to use this? What is he referring to? Paul here is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament is not yet completed and being distributed at this time. Paul's saying that the Old Testament is pointing here to the gospel. It's pointing to Christ. It points to the saving work of Christ on the cross as an atonement of sins. The people of Corinth would be familiar with this. And so Paul here is using their historical context and what they currently know to show them how the gospel is what has been foretold and has now been made flesh through Christ. Although Paul could have left the evidence in the word of God, it is enough. He chooses to also show the evidence in the people of God. He lists out several, several people here, and he seems to be doing it in an expanding circle. He begins with those that are on the inside, and he gradually zooms out with each passing ring. He begins with, with Peter, with Cephas, and the 12 disciples. He then expands it out then to a group of 500, 
then to a group of apostles or sent out ones, and finally then to Paul. Why is this so important? We have three aspects of the gospel that Paul chooses to define for us. We have the death, we have the burial, and the resurrection. Yet, Paul chooses only one to give physical examples, to give physical evidence and support to. I believe the reason why is because of the miraculous nature of the resurrection. If Christ truly was raised from the dead, then it isn't a huge leap to say that he also died and was buried. Death and burial are both commonplace events this side of heaven. Resurrection, however, is not. In a practical nature, if you were to come up to me after service and you were to say, hey, a friend of mine has died and has been buried, I would place my pastoral care hat on and I would walk alongside of you through that. However, if you were to tell me that they were then resurrected, my ears would perk up, we'd be probably having a different chat. That's not as normal. Again, I'm from Missouri. Show me. Let me see the evidence. Paul uses people that were known as part of his proof. It isn't his only claim, but others as well. Paul uses two proofs of the gospel that I believe are two proofs we may use today also. First is evidence in the word of God. And second is evidence in the people of God. We today have an advantage that Paul didn't. We have the completed canon. We can see the foretelling of Christ. We can see the life of Christ. We can see the power of Christ. And we can even see the return of Christ coming. I once had a professor say that the Old Testament is like a dimly lit room. Everything is still there. The furniture is all in its place. You just can't quite see it as well. The New Testament is like somebody walking in and flipping on the light switch. It's all been there the whole time. You just see it a little bit differently now. We don't have the dimly lit room. In fact, we're working with like a 75-watt bulb here. Scripture is enough when it comes to the evidence of the gospel, but God has provided us with even more. If you look to your neighbor to the left and to the right, as believers, we are evidence of the gospel. We are the tangible people that God uses to display the power of the gospel. In our community groups last week, we walked through a question that simply said, how has the gospel impacted your life? It's kind of an, an easy question that's easy to ask, but really tough to answer. The group that I was in, in fact, we had a very challenging time answering that question because it's so large of a question. It's like asking a husband, husband, why do you love your wife? Husbands, this is your chance. I can't describe it. It's, it's too big. I don't have enough words. The English language fails. That was your chance and you missed it. It's deep and it's vast. Christian, you're walking evidence of the gospel. Your life should be marked by the gospel. You should constantly be the seasoned doctor showing the new residents what experience looks like. Some of you in here might not have experienced the gospel in your life, though. Although this text shows people who Christ had revealed himself to after the resurrection, I believe it's also a declaration of the heart of God. I said it earlier, but it appears that Paul references the appearance of Christ in these expanding circles, beginning with the innermost and going to the outermost. The individuals closest to Christ, the disciples, and he moves it to the furthest away, Paul himself. I'd like to focus on the last individual, Paul. Read with me verses 8 through 10. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul has an interesting story. In case you aren't familiar with Paul, I'd refer you back to the book of Acts. The guy that we know as Paul is Saul that you see in the book of Acts. He's a persecutor of the church. He's the guy that would go around finding Christians and killing them. He was the guy that we see in Acts 6 as we see Stephen, Acts 7, the stoning of Stephen. He's the individual holding the coats of the men as they kill him. This is the guy that we are now reading a letter from to the Corinthian church. What has changed? Paul experienced Christ. The most unlikely of individuals, the one who was against, is now standing for. This message of redemption through Christ is still available today. We see the same message throughout the Bible. Those who are far off, those whose sin seems so great, are redeemed by God. This morning, I'm sure there are some of you in here who might believe that your sin is too great. If only you knew, Pastor, of the things that I've done, of the things that I've experienced, of the things that I have walked through, you probably wouldn't let me in the doors of this facility. I can assure you, the death upon the cross is greater than any sin. And Paul is our example of this. He understood that. Verse 10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul attributes his current circumstance, the individual writing to the Corinthian church, to grace and grace alone. The gospel that we just walk through is still applicable to us today. It's the power to save and the power to sanctify. Wherever you are on your journey towards Christ, the gospel is our answer. We looked so far at the gospel definition, and we've also looked now at the gospel evidence. To finish our time this morning, I would love to look now at the gospel mission. We've already hinted at it a little bit. The mission of the gospel can be found both at the beginning and the end of this passage. It's almost like bookends with the meat in the middle, and you have these two statements on either side. Paul both begins and ends with this short paragraph with the same application piece. The mission of the gospel does not remain dormant on these pages. Because of the gospel, there is now action that the people of God should be partaking in. What you have received should now be delivered. We've already looked at this piece, but look how Paul chooses to rephrase it in verse 11. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He chooses to look at preaching of the gospel message and belief. He's just walked through this list of people that Christ appeared to after his resurrection. And now Paul says it doesn't matter whether it's them or whether it's him. Both Paul and these individuals now have a responsibility to preach. This responsibility is carried on to us today. The word preach possibly isn't what you think it means, though. Right now, what I am doing, you would say, is preaching. However, preaching goes far beyond what happens in churches on Sunday mornings for 30 to 45 minutes. It should, at least. 
If the work of ministry is tied only to this stage, then church, we are in trouble. This passage in 1 Corinthians, it reminds me of a parallel passage found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. It's very similar in the way that they're structured, very similar in the, the mission of the gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Notice the inner to the outer locations here. Notice also the mission that's laid out. Notice that we have received the Holy Spirit and then are directed to deliver as missionaries. The mission here is to be a witness. There are two ideas that you might think of whenever you hear the word witness. One is simply an observer, and the other is one who provides evidence. An observer is passive. They're simply seeing what has happened. There's no action required to observe. The other use of witness, however, is very active. You move now from an observer to more of a reporter. You have observed, and you're now tasked with reporting what you have observed. I love the word witness because I believe it uses both definitions at the same time. It just sounds very similar to what we have already seen. We witness. We observe the gospel. This is what we receive. We then witness and are ourselves evidence of the gospel to others. This is our calling as believers. We are all called to be preachers. Some do it from a stage, such as this one. Others do it in parachurch organizations. Others do it in their offices. Others do it with your families, with your little children at home. There's no limit geographically where this ends. Everyone who has received the gospel should be delivering the gospel. Be faithful preachers. So you preach, and others will believe. Also, remember that this journey you partake in of preaching isn't done alone. In Acts, Jesus tells us of a receiving, receiving of the Holy Spirit. He will be with us as we go. Also, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters on the same journey of delivering. It can be easier at times to link arms with one another as you get started delivering what you have received. We've looked at a definition. We've looked at the evidence. And now we look at our mission of the gospel. It's my hope that we would be, as a church, not only founded on the gospel, but partakers of the gospel mission. I desire for everyone in here to be in a discipling relationship. I desire for our church to be a body full of gospel preachers. Begin now. Begin today. If you need help connecting the dots, reach out. Find somebody who can help. The hardest step is that very first one. Church, let us be devoted to delivering what we have received. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the message that is still timely for us. Father, we thank you for the message of the cross. Lord, we thank you for the way that Paul has articulated so simple a gospel. 
that your son has died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised, Father. We thank you, Lord, for the complete nature of the death of Christ upon the cross, for the way that it has covered all sins. Father, I thank you for the reminder of the least of us, the ones such as Paul, Lord, the ones that feel that we may have gone too far away from Christ, away from the cross, Lord. Thank you for the reminder of the example of Paul. Though he persecuted your body, your church, Father, you still had a mission for him. Father, and you have redeemed him through the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be gospel missionaries. Father, that as the mission of the gospel is to proclaim the gospel, Lord, that we would deliver what we have received. Father, and it would be first and foremost the gospel. Father, I pray that the way that you have individually built and directed each one of our lives, Lord, that some of the hard circumstances that we have gone through as individuals, Lord, can be redeemed and used as a proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.